This is Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Sinell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hi, thanks for joining us on Tech Transforms, a podcast sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford here with my co-host, Mark Sinell. Hey, Mark. Hey, Carolyn. So today we get to talk to Rick Stewart, a good friend. And Rick Stewart is Chief Software Technologist at DLT. He has more than 34 years. Do you really want me to tell people that, Rick? That makes you sound super old. <laughs> uh, no, it, it, it has some relations to um, you know the old way of doing things, traditional way. So okay. okay, there you go. So he he knows the old stuff and the new stuff with 34 years of diverse experience in the IT industry progressing through technical and leadership roles in telecommunications, mobile entertainment, federal government, and manufacturing industries. And today, um, Rick is joining us to talk about DevOps research and assessments, or DORA, term new to me, and four key metrics for increasing efficiency and delivering service and discuss and discuss how Platform One has advanced the cultural transformation to DevOps. So welcome, Rick. Thank you for being here. Well, thanks, Carolyn. Thanks, Mark. We really appreciate you having me as a guest. Yeah, welcome, Rick. Oh, and by the way, Rick started this when he was six. That's right. There we go. There we go. That, that takes care of that 34-year thing. <laughs> so, Rick, I'm going to be honest. Like, I've been in the industry for a while. I have never heard the term DORA. And maybe, you know, DevOps research and assessments, it makes sense. I just haven't heard the acronym. And they have four key metrics for increasing efficiency with delivering service. And those metrics are deploy, deployment frequency, lead time for changes, change failure rate, and time to restore service. Will you unpack those for us? Sure. Um, and it's interesting, Carolyn, that you say that because um, I attend several different events and conferences where we have really astute, especially in the public sector, astute people that have lots of experience. And they're on this journey of DevOps or in the public sector, it's more DevSecOps, bringing security up to the, uh, as a first-class citizen. Um, uh, And they were talking about the things that they capture, um, the the journey that they're on, um, their improvements. And, on one of these occasions, Dora was brought up, I think actually me via a Q&A panel. And it was surprising that a lot of them didn't know what this organization does. Um, and especially being so well-versed in the, um, in the cultural transformation, um, uh, not knowing some of the things to focus on, I, I thought was really important for, for, to, to shine a light on. Because is I think there's a Dora, lot of information. Is it a federal organization? No, it's a it's more of a, a community-based organization, a uh, industry-based organization. Oh. Um, and what they do is, you know, we've got you know people like uh, Jez Humble and Gene Kim um, and others that are involved with this. And what they do is they go out and they they do surveys of not just public sector but private sector, all organizations globally, um, and they they basically give them surveys and they talk about their experience, where they're at in the in the um, the spectrum of uh, their journey, and what they have discovered through this analysis, and it's a really deep, uh, long analysis, 
Um, there's a book called Accelerate um, by uh, that was done by uh, Nicole Ferguson. She's a PhD and she um, uh, took lots of painstaking analysis on these organizations and these teams and um, asked them a series of questions. And what it, what it boiled down to is there's a lot of um, traditional uh, metrics that have been ingrained in the industry that are, you know, useful somewhat, um, becoming less useful over the years, like lines of code, when we're talking about mainframe and the complexity and function points, et cetera. As the industry has changed into a more um, uh, service-oriented or even microservice-oriented architectures, those types of metrics are less useful. Um, so when you're talking about a cultural transformation of getting development teams and operations teams working in unison and collaborating together, uh, these four metrics were uh, decidedly uh, important to focus on in order to um, uh, um, strive more towards that collaborative effort because these indicate the ability to deliver software with high quality um, and the ability to rectify any uh, changes or, 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 or security vulnerabilities um, and rectify them quickly. So um, without going through each one, well, I'll go through each one of them. Deployment frequency um, is how often an organization successfully releases a product to production. Um, a product in this case could be a service, could be any kind of workload, an application, and there's differences to that. Um, there's an old saying that says, um, um, if something is difficult um, to do, do it more often and you'll get better at it and, and it will become less difficult. So this deployment frequency talks to that. You have to measure how many times you're deploying a particular change into production so that you can um, A, determine um, your impact, the value you're having on your stakeholders, but also the ability to measure how frequently you can deliver that value. Um, the one industry day I went to in the Navy, and I'll, I'll, I'll go back and forth between private and public sector. Um, the, the public sector industry days are very interesting to me, not only because that's the space I'm working in, um, but more importantly, it crystallized the importance of service delivery and frequency and speed. Um, it was a Navy captain that was giving an industry because they wanted to you know, develop a DevOps prototype. Um, and one thing that struck me was, um, I can't wait two weeks while I'm in the middle of the Mediterranean, potentially in a firefight to get a release, to a change to an application that's not working properly. Um, so that kind of manifested for me uh, the importance of uh, focusing on the right things. Um, so you have to look at the uh, your frequency and where you're de um, deploying these changes, not to just enhancements in value, yeah. but to rectify issues, defects, and uh, security vulnerabilities. And are you seeing the agencies, you know, government agencies? Are they have they embraced these metrics? These four metrics. Um, I think they've embraced a hundred different metrics, but the industry is is telling them, just like it's telling them to move towards DevOps or DevSecOps, it's telling them focus more on these. Um, get rid of the 300-page uh, system security uh, procedures. Mm. Uh, 
that's that's a that's a waste of time because you're not getting value. And, sorry, when you say industries telling them, who's industry? Industry would be any like the developers that are um, in private sector that are in the Netflixes, the AWSs, the um, the industry leaders that have proven the Googles uh, that can um, deploy changes and, and take advantage of disruptive technology and innovative services uh, quickly and are recognized as thought leaders in terms of what should be a measurement in terms of uh, measuring teams productivity when they're on this journey to DevSecOps. Okay. Are these are these um uh, are, are are these standards something that the the Dora organization came up with? Um, like you talk about the industry standards. Where where are they getting the, the, do you know where they're getting stand, the standards from? Um the, the deployment frequency is 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 kind of a standard. It's always been around. I mean, uh, you mentioned the 34 years. I've 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 known about deployments. You know, ever since I'm started doing software. Um, yeah. But so these four metrics, the Dora organization, it sounds like, has boiled it down to these four most important. And you're right. saying from industry like Netflix, like right. um, AWS, Amazon, Google, yeah, Google. Okay. Because so they've taken, they've looked at best practices, the metrics that really matter, and Dora said these are the four that matter. Right. Okay. Because they they can link back to um, the collaboration across multiple different teams, which is the essence of DevOps or DevSecOps. Because these teams have different disciplines, they have different priorities, they have different um, uh, measurements within their own teams, and if you can measure that you're getting better at deploying more frequently, it indicates that you're collaborating more with these teams, you're getting more um, rapid in terms of moving that thought from code to application to delivery quicker. Okay. Do they, do they um, uh, uh, just lost my train of thought, uh, um, are there um, metrics that They've come up with to determine what does increasing efficiency mean, or is this kind of are they kind of like work work groups that uh, you know kind of look at you know uh, thinking through you know what an organization might be dealing with? Well, they're looking really at the the number the the sheer metric, and they divide it into four different um, categories of performance. Uh, you have your elite performances. I mentioned like the Netflixes, the Googles, et cetera. They're 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 deploying multiple times a day. Which, uh, Mark, I'm sure you know in the public sector, multiple times a day is it's like utopia for right. a public sector entity. You're, they're usually talking once every six months, once every year, and they better make it successful, or else they have to marshal all those resources again. You're talking about time, money, you know. Um, not being able to provide value, those types of things. So they're, they're, when you're looking at um, uh, measurement of the metric itself, you're trying to categorize it to allow you to move up this hierarchy of, if you're a low performer, you're maybe doing it once a week or once a month, or like I said, once every six months, that's not optimum. How do you move up? You try to increase the, your ability to deploy faster. What does that mean? Talk to more groups, get them into a room. What are the bottlenecks? What are the 
What are the areas that need improvement? How do you work together um, even when you're in a different company? Because in the public sector, you might have uh, different contractors, different companies doing various different pieces of this. So it's very, very important um, to foster that collaboration so that you can deploy more. So that should be the goal. How do I deploy more and faster? So, um, so one of the one of the things that has me thinking is how can organizations strive to get to the next tier of performance in in each of these benchmarks? Um, well, that goes into the other metrics lead or feed into um, these four different um, metrics. For yeah. example, your lead time for changes. Um, which is the next metric that they talked about, um, which is how much time does it take me to, this is more developer speaking, more technical, when I commit my code saying, this has passed all my testing, uh, I, I've got it through my, uh, 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 my team, they've looked it over, it's passed all the tests, and I've committed that branch or that version of my change onto yeah. the main um, version control. Now, um, there is a movement towards, um, well, let me back it up a little bit. Previously, um, when you developed a release, a deployment to go to production, everybody, all your developers would make their changes and uh, uh, be committed to that particular release branch. That has subsequently changes with this, this movement towards Agile and making things more um, frequent, smaller deployments, where each developer would have their own little branch. And once they finished their little piece of the world, passed all the regression testing, they would commit their code to branch and using um, automation would move that change uh, from building the application, moving it through test environments and pre-production, moving it to user's test, getting approval user test and deploying into production. So, Getting that time faster allows you to deploy more frequently so that one feeds into the other. So in order to focus on moving up the chain, um, you need to apply, in my opinion, more automation. Um, these are very repetitive tasks. If mm -hmm. you've ever developed code before um, and you've ever developed software, um, it is the combination of artistry and engineering um, in a beautiful dance because you're trying to be an artist you're trying to be creative you're trying to figure out you know what's the most elegant way to put something together but there's certain engineering tasks that have to be done and if you don't do them it will bite you in the rear end later on down the line and that is constantly test constantly scan uh, constantly do the mundane task that allows your code not only to be elegant but to be maintainable and also uh, correct in terms of requirements and hygienic in terms of not introducing vulnerabilities. But that so, mundane constancy, con consistency, you you just said it. It's you automate all that, right? Yes. No. That, that, uh, the um, if if DevOps DevSecOps is the movement or the journey, um, automation is the key ingredient to allow you to move faster. Mm -hmm. um, There's our soundbite, Mark. <laughs> It is a great soundbite. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it sounds like I was just going to ask you if you feel like these four metrics are sufficient, but listening to you talk, there's four big 
rocks, and then there's a whole bunch of metrics yeah. that fall underneath each of them. Yeah, but they should be feeding into um, uh, increasing your frequency, increase or decreasing your lead time for changes, making that smaller. Mm -hmm. uh, your change fail rate, you want to make that as small as possible. There's ways that you can do this with automation. Um, and then the time to restore service or the mean time to repair. I've heard mean time to restore, mean time to resolve, mean time to uh, uh, re remediate. So MTTR, um, the R is interchangeable, but it means the same thing. When, um, uh, let, let me, the change failure rate is when I, when the DevOps, DevSecOps teams deploys into production, was that a catastrophic failure such that you had to roll back or remove that change because you're making it worse than what it was before? Um, so uh, a lot of times, uh, speaking of industry, I was in the telecommunications industry. We were doing a lot of um, uh, white labeled systems for uh, the wireless industry, all the, all the, the big ones, the Verizons, the AT&T, et cetera. And they have very strict procedures in when um, deployments occur within Windows. And it's usually between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. on a Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, just enough to break up your week and make developers and operations like miserable. Between those, those two times, um, if was any failure uh, deploying your new code, no matter how important it was, you backed it out and you rolled it back and you tried again, either the next day or the next week or the next window that they had. Um, that, um, that gets grueling. And what happens if you do have a major catastrophe or a major issue with your, your system or your new change or your, your fix, it could take weeks before you can get that out. And meanwhile, you're not producing any value from enhancements to that application because they stay behind the failed deployment. Um, so you need to reduce that change failure rate, um, hopefully to zero. And the elite performers do this. And they do this with many different um, uh, methods. Uh, one most popular um, is kind of a blue-green deployment. Um, and what they do there is, let's say you have version one of an application and you it's running in production. Um, everything's fine. Now you had version two and you want to enhance it or fix it. And you deploy version two alongside of your version one um, deployment, one blue, one green. You can test offline your new version two uh, to ensure that it's it meets requirements, it's, it's working properly, it scales all the different operational functional capabilities that it needs to do. And then when you're happy about that, you can switch it over or you can produce certain amount of traffic uh, to get real traffic to it. So it make sure you, it behaves properly. Uh, and when it does, you just uh, stop traffic to the old version and uh, put all the traffic to the new version seamlessly with no downtime. Do, so, do developers ever play games like in a test environment where they, they blow it up on purpose so they can see how fast they can restore? Um, it, it should be part of the culture and the, the um, methodology that DevOps or DevSecOps teams have. Um, I, I always likened it um, when somebody asked me, I said, I'm a pessimistic optimist, meaning I, I want things to occur properly, but I know Murphy's involved with everything. So let's test it uh, before we go live. 
um, because if we don't test it there, um, it will cause havoc. And again, coming from that environment where you get one or two shots once, twice a week, um, you want to make sure that you um, uh, was it uh, measure twice, cut once. Um, so that measure twice is testing in in the test environment, pre-production environment, um, so that when it gets to production, you're pretty confident that your change will work and it will be resilient enough um, to maintain production traffic. One other point, Carolyn, I think it's a it's a it's a it's a good one. I've always advocated um, that pre-production environments should mirror production environments. Um, there's been kind of a drift within the industry in terms of developers. Well, I can develop in this environment and I can push it to this environment, but it looks slightly different. But you know, I'll maintain some changes here and I'll and I'll make it work. And then what goes in production it might be a third different environment. That's really a fool's errand. That's that's going to result in a in a in a bad experience. Um, so luckily, there's some automation that makes that um, that gap between the differences between production and, and pre-production uh, a whole lot easier and a whole lot more narrow. So so speaking of automation, and you've talked about this in blogs um, that you you've had um, where you talk about platform one, right? And you talk about uh, how platform one leverages uh, new technologies and automation, et cetera. Can you can you can you uh, dig into this a little bit with us? And first, I guess tell us tell our listeners um, what platform one is. Sure, platform one is an innovative Air Force um, environment that is built on uh, the Kubernetes uh, orchestration and management. Um, uh, framework. Now I'll explain that in a second. The second one is that it is um, it requires development teams to deliver their services and even the tools that develop their services in containers. And containers are, um, you can think of them as small virtual machines that only have application needs um, installed in it. Um, Docker like a modular, like a modular approach, right? It, it, think of it as a widget. Um, from an operational standpoint, they all look like several different widgets. Each one of those widgets could be completely different language, dependencies, structures, et cetera, inside. But for an operational com, uh, capability, is much more efficient because um, you can deploy these widgets as um, independent um, items. Um, generic items, um, and you can uh, uh, deploy them using scheduling techniques that make sure that a, that an application's needs um, are deployed on a host uh, within the Kubernetes environment that has the appropriate resources to to um, uh, to serve that application. It has enough resources that it can scale if it has um, uh, too many requests coming to it. Um, it can um, descale or become less uh, in order to take advantage of resources, et cetera. But the application itself could be in a, a myriad um, languages or, or constructs from applications, which is really, really nice in terms of um, uh, uh, crystallizing or, or making concrete some of the notions that came out of the Agile movement, which was um, each task that comes across a developer's desk 
um, shouldn't always be a Java application per se, or, or you know, uh, pick a language, um, because that's what the operational team can support. The notion that um, the best technology should be used for the task at hand really makes a developer's life a lot easier because you can pick maybe a lighter weight language or an application to create um, uh, to solve the, the task and then deploy it and not worry about the operational risk of not having dependencies or anything uh, that the application needs once it goes further in pre-production and down into production. Um, and, and we're talking about public sector, that production environment could be a ship, uh, it could be an embedded system, it could be running on an airplane, it could be running on a warfighter um, themselves, uh, a drone, et cetera. So the, 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 um, the context of where your applications are being deployed is much more vast than it was you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, so the back to the containers, uh, developers now have the construct, they've been using it for, for a little over a decade now um, in, in their own environments, but now Kubernetes gives them a enterprise grade um, orchestration and management um, environment to deploy those containers in so that they run uh, correctly. And more important, they can be moved around across um, what they call clusters. Clusters are just um, server hosts, whether they be physical or virtual, um, across a wide variety, either a data center or a cloud provider um, or a combination of all the above. Um, and you're running these Kubernetes cluster and they have the ability to communicate. They have software defined networks uh, that can expose um, the necessary services for each application. Um, and they can route traffic uh, to one or more of these uh, individual containers so that now you have clusters of, of host, clusters of applications that can spin up and spin down based on demand. And now you have a true environment that looks heterogeneous um, to um, the observer, but could be made up of many different types of operating systems um, and uh, physical host um, and virtualization. But those workloads, those containers can be moved around at um, uh, across the cluster at ease with the guarantee of uh, namespacing, which gives them uh, security around each one of them. So Kubernetes is the delivery system? Yeah, it's the target platform where you're delivering those containers upon. Okay. The Kubernetes and environment is a, is, a, is, a, uh, is a cluster of server hosts all working in conjunction, acting as one, but each one of them knowing what the underlying virtual or physical host has in terms of resources, and then the scheduling of the deployment using Kubernetes deployments can put that container, that application on the right host using the right amount of resources and the, the necessary needs for that application to run. It's an executive admin for... <laughs> well, think about it as a distributor, a distributor of, yeah. of and was, putting was, things in the right place. Um, this technology... I always, oh, I'm ahead. sorry, Mark. I always think of like the Matrix when it's kind of a gross analogy, but uh, when they're, they're harvesting the humans, yeah. they, have, they have the things that move things around. That's kind of Kubernetes. It's kind of moving things across 
um, a wide variety of uh, in that grade of power grid. Okay. That is funny. It's like the t a technologist view of the world thinking of that. <laughs> so, so was this, so was this, uh, Rick, was this technology something that um, was kind of novel in its approach or was, is it something that like there's other, there's other capabilities and things out there to do similar stuff? Yeah, I kind of got off track with the platform one because they have really embraced those two main technologies mm -hmm. and all the derivatives off of those two main technologies. They had other um, um, initiatives like these DevOps things, Kessel Run and some other base camps. But for platform one, they were very diligent about uh, making certain rules about platform one um, that would not only um, allow development teams to work in those environments to build upon automation um, that um, can expedite your ability to develop faster and deploy faster, um, such as pipelines, which is another key technology. Um, they lean heavily towards open source um, as, as the technology uh, provider. Now, personally, I have, uh, I have a strong opinion about this. I love open source. I think it's, it's a great industry changer in terms of having industry experts contribute to a community in order to solve a problem um, and then having their monumental expertise um, you know, devoted to that project. However, they move at um, rapier speed, the light speed. Um, and what that means is now the organization, such as the Air Force in this case, is now has to devote resources to make sure to take care of those open source projects um, and make sure that once they have a vulnerability that's detected, how fast can you um, rectify that open source exploitation? Um, who's going to support it? Sometimes these um, open source communities take a complete left turn in order to take advantage of a, a disruptive technology. Sometimes that left turn leaves behind everyone in its wake with no um, path um, to get back on track. So you're leaving all these applications with that particular technology kind of at the mercy of the community and when they'll address it and when they'll, um, uh, when they'll allow patches, et cetera. Um, I like um, providers, vendors that use open source as a, uh, a research and development arm, uh, foster the communities that have these experts in them, uh, these projects that are devoted to, and then they um, uh, they support these things under their own um, uh, brand name, um, and then they'll uh, charge the the customer um, a subscription fee in order to do that. But they're not. Just, there's a lot of um, uh, bad nomenclature about well, you're buying free software. No, you're not. You're buying the support, which is significant when you're talking about an enterprise grade organizations like the Air Force. Um, so if the, the price in my mind for total cost of ownership uh, really does um, pale in, 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 uh, in comparison to talking about having a whole entire staff devoted to maintaining a platform. Now, so I, got a, I got a quick question for you, Rick, because you sure. talked about open source and, I, and, and, I, and I'm a little scared to ask this because I think we're going, I might be taking you down a rat hole. That's but okay. Does this assume that everybody in that community has good intentions? 
Uh, is, that no, a risk? is that a risk? Um, it, it's not, Mark, it's not really not really bad intentions. It's, it's um, diverted goals. Um, there is a, um, there is a quote, um, uh, the Federal Computer Weekly um, did a survey across uh, open source uh, contributors. And um, a large percent of it, uh, I, I, I think, can't think of the top of my head, I think it's like 68% of them, um, said that um, something to the effect of um, instituting security in open source is a soul withering task that takes up my day. Now that's the mentality that they have, where they're looking for innovation, you know, uh, disruption, um, cool technology, and they're not necessarily devoted to, um, you know, maintaining good security posture. Which, again, the public sector—that's that's job one. Um, right. They have a whole risk management framework that addresses um, their ability to um, uh, secure themselves from security vulnerabilities. Going back to what you said about open source and then mm -hmm. bringing it to nation state attacks and all of that, I, based on what you said, I would imagine that the use of open source affects authority to operate. Is that a fair assumption? Yes. Um, the authority to operate um, and, and more, more modern is the continuous authority to operate because when you think about it, um, these um, these life cycles of applications are not just every six months or every few weeks. They are constant um, loops of activities that occur continuously in an iterative basis. Um, so the open source community um, delivers the ability for either the tooling um, to um, create applications or they are part of the applications themselves. Now, when you have um, an ingredient in your recipe that may be vulnerable, uh, may be uh, poor and may, may have poison, for example, um, you would want to not only detect that um, immediately or further back in the life cycle, um, because what you don't want is that getting into production and affecting um, your end users potentially opening up risk, um, opening up to nation states, like you said, adversaries, but also you don't want them um, uh, uh, allowing people to see data or get, get you know, OPM is another attack uh, that was opened up by a security flaw. Um, so these open source communities are great and move fast, but they do tend to have um, security vulnerabilities that need to be constantly scanned and checked. Um, because they are moving at a rapid pace, they're getting added on, they're having dependencies included in them um, that um, need to be um, scanned or I call it hygienics, but any anything that um, may be vulnerable uh, that needs to be addressed by the development team using that ingredient. So how, so, is, how is it possible to do continuous authority to operate and use open source? Right. Well, that that requires what Platform One is doing is they're creating pipelines uh, first in order to get the tooling that operates that creates your software, your your workloads. You're scanning them for vulnerabilities, and not only scanning like the first line, what's what's this made of? Um, uh, you have supply, um, what they call um, 
software bill of materials, which is basically the ingredients that make up whatever software you're dealing with. Um, and those um, bills or materials uh, or materials also have dependencies. So you need technology that not only scans for the first line dependency vulnerability, but also looking at those subsequent, the secondary and tertiary uh, dependencies that yeah, might but that automated software is only as good as what it knows. So you get something zero day in there and you're. Which, which goes back to the mean time to repair because it, Carolyn, you're right on the nose. A lot of these times it's, you know, everybody doing their best still a vulnerability is not identified until it is identified and they may have multiple different incarnations across a production environment. So the mean time to repair uh, metric now comes into play where you want to not only identify it, but how quickly can you act and how quick is your automation to move that new repair into production to- Got it, and, and hopefully the failures happening on the staging server so the mean time to repair happens before it ever goes into production, right? Right. But let's let's be really honest on these high performers. It's probably in production already. Uh, um, I, right. I I have a colleague, um, a cybersecurity expert, and he always focuses on it's not really the identification of something. Is how fast can you remediate that that um, that that issue? Uh, is what um, CISOs or um, uh, yeah. Security officers are looking at how fast, how vulnerable are we, and how fast can we fix it? Dmitry Alprovich is really, I mean, I, I love listening to him talk about mean time to recovery. He kind of invented that model, right? So, all right, we are going to jump to the really huh. fun part of the. Not this hasn't been fun, but it's. I'm, <laughs> I'm getting a little brain fatigue, so we're going to go to the fun. Oh, part sorry now. about that, Carolyn. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It doesn't take much to give me brain fatigue. <laughs> so we're going to go to our tech talk questions. And these are just, you know, some quick answer them in a sentence and if okay. possible. But so the first question is, what do you think the next leap or big leap in technology is going to be? Um, well, it's it's kind of leaping there now uh, with AI and uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. But quantum computing, I think, is probably something that's really, really interesting. And that's really um, looking at data and computing at a subatomic level um, and crunching massive amount of data in a short period of time. For example, 100 seconds worth of crunching could end up being 1,000 or 10,000 years of traditional computing power. Yeah, that's um, just, honestly, I cannot, I can't no, wrap I can't, my head around it. I used to, like I said, I used to work in a data center where the whole data center was, you know, blocks and blocks long of just, in, you know, CPUs after CPUs. Now that processing power is in your hand with your phone. It really is getting yeah. quite astonishing. But think about it from facial recognition, uh, for cybersecurity detection, those types of things um, um, will be monumentally affected in a positive way um, using um uh, using that technology. All right, Mark. Is it here, the... is it here today or is it oh, right it's, around it's, the corner? It's, it's on its way. It, back in the day, you used to call them daisy chaining um, computers yeah. together. Uh, now they're just becoming more virtualized and more um, compact. 
So when it comes to technology, what inspires you? And this can be TV, oh. books, movies, podcasts, anything like that. Is there is there anything that's inspiring you around that? Well, you, you know what? I was um, uh, my daughter was a vegan for a while. Um, uh, she subsequently she's still on the vegan cusp. Um, and I attended a uh, industry day, and they were talking about um, how. Uh, technology can um, increase the ability to grow food in places where it's not grown before using, you know, uh, computational analysis and soil analysis and, and, and climate, et cetera. Um, I find that to be the most interesting because the parts of the world that have the ability to, to grow their own food is, is one that's not going to be an adversary later. Um, so I look at uh, that uh, that area of uh, using technology for the betterment of humankind. Um, compelling. Yeah, and uh, really, yeah. that's that's kind of well, not kind of. That is the mission of of this podcast, Tech Transforms, to talk about those technologies that are making life better. So, are mm-hmm. there um, podcasts or anybody other than that, ours? What is it? Other than ours. Right, exactly. But specifically around the food stuff, is there somebody that you follow? To, uh, the no, latest I, and greatest? I, no, I, I'll, I'll read an article or two and I'll follow that. Um, but I, but uh, to be honest with Carolyn, I got to be on top of a lot of different things. So I try to keep myself widespread in terms of um, industry trends. I just can't get bogged down into one particular vein. Um, mm. So um, not really like, all the government uh, podcasts, GovIT, et cetera, that, that I watch, um, because I'm trying to you know, map where the industry and where technology is and how to apply it basically for my, for my company as well. Okay, last question. We're, we're going to movies here or oh. books. Do you have a favorite genre? I've been really intrigued, and it, and it, it does dovetail somewhere back into the uh, uh, quantum computing. Um, I've been reading a lot about um, philosophy and a lot about um, uh, psychology and the, the 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 value of meaning, the meaning in the world. Mm. Um, so it's really deep. It takes me a very very long time to get through one book because I have to read very slowly. Every give us uh, an example, like of the book you just. What's the latest book you just but, read? Uh, Beyond Order is something that Jordan, Dr. Jordan Peterson wrote, and I'm 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 an avid follower of him. Um, in terms of he links religious concepts with uh, governmental policy uh, concepts, with uh, psychology and how the mind works, evolution, and he he rolls these things into more stories about how things were created and what's a value system and how things uh, are valued one versus another and how um, certain systems become corrupt um, because um, there, there's too much order. So chaos, mm-hmm. and I can think of like open sources, like chaos, um, mm-hmm. institute in there to change. That's a really chaos. good way to describe open source. That's how I think of open source. Yeah, it, 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 it really is. It's, you know, people focused on one thing and they're trying to get it absolutely right. And they're thinking about it completely different than it was thought about yesterday. And it completely changes the industry. And that's kind of his, um, uh, forte. He talks about this at a very, very micro level 
And when you start building that up, I'm like, okay, that makes sense to me why that happens. Wow. That that is interesting stuff. Yeah. That's not boring, Carolyn. No, it's really <laughs> yeah, interesting. That, yeah. But I just need yeah. somebody like I don't like want to Rick. come off as the boring guy. I, I no, just need, no, it's it's deep though. It's it's super interesting and I love it, but I don't want to read it. I just want you to tell me about it, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> Cliff notes version. That's uh, right. I want the Rick notes version. No, if Thanksgiving dinner, if, if if I start on this path, my wife is like, okay, okay, next subject. <laughs> okay, okay. Who's your su- favorite superhero? <laughs> oh, um, I, I, Superman has to be the my favorite, I think. Um, oh, no, everything. it's Wonder Woman. Let me fix that oh, for you. It's... Yeah, and again, my, <laughs> my geek colleague... Uh, we, he went on like an hour diatribe about how Wonder Woman would win in a fight. I'm like, okay, you win. Um, Cause I'm really not that interested up to a point 45 minutes in. All right. I'm going to stop harassing you, Rick. Thank you for being a good sport. And thank you, especially for taking time today to talk to us, give us your insights. Listeners, thank you for listening. Please visit the show notes for links to all of the topics that Rick has discussed with us today. And we want to thank our sponsor, Dynatrace. You can visit dynatrace.com to learn more about how you can digitally transform faster, smarter, and easier. Please share today's episode and give us a like and a review. And we will be back next week on Tech Transforms. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms. Please post a review, share this episode, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.